Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Arming school security personnel to protect students and staff. We speak with the superintendent of schools for Lyme and Old Lyme to find out how they got here and what it all means. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's a sad state of affairs when we have to arm security personnel or even post police officers at our schools. But that's the reality we live in. And with mass shootings happening at our schools with frequent regularity, many boards of education have taken steps to try and protect their students and staff by implementing various protective measures like bulletproof or shatterproof glass, door locks and classroom communication systems. But because the discussion about gun control in the country remains so polarising, many are taking an extra step. And where they cannot afford or have access to local law enforcement to be at their schools, they're turning to arming their school security personnel in the hopes it would act as either a deterrent or at the very least provide a faster response time in the event of an active shooter situation at their schools. The schools of Lyme and Old Lyme along the shoreline of Connecticut have become the latest to favour arming their school security personnel. During a recent special Board of Education meeting on June 15th, they also allowed public comment. The board ultimately voted 7-2 in favour of arming their school guards. I sat down with Ian Navizer, the superintendent of the Lyme Old Lyme School District, for a very direct discussion with him about how they ended up here. Superintendent Navizer, thanks for the interview. A lot of media attention at the moment with regards to a decision which was made on the 15th of June 2022 by the Board of Education in a vote of 7-2 to two to arm security personnel in three schools here in your region. Talk us through how we got to that. Certainly. So this is something we have discussed for quite a while. Obviously, safety and security of schools has been a hot topic since Columbine, when my career was really beginning many, many years ago. And as you're well aware, there have been other unfortunate situations in schools, most specifically in Texas. There was a situation in Uvalde. But we are constantly evaluating our safety and security procedures. And one of the concerns we've had for a long time in our safety committee, which I'll talk about who serves on that committee, is the response time by police. And I don't say that to fault the police. This is just a reality of having to drive their vehicle from one place to another. And the location of our schools and the fact that we do not have a local police force really puts us at a disadvantage in terms of the response time. If you look at any of the specialists in this area, I've been to a number of trainings with the FBI, with the Connecticut State Police on school shootings, and their number one emphasis is on the quicker the response, the better chance you have of saving people's lives. So that's really where this this came from. I did mention that I would 
talk about our safety committee a little bit. We do have a safety committee that meets regularly throughout the year. That's comprised of school staff, board of education members, local first responders, which includes the fire department, the ambulance, our local police, the state police. We do have a resident state trooper here and our school nurses. So we cover a lot of things in that committee, not necessarily just school safety, health issues, etc. But obviously a lot of our time is spent talking about school safety. And that's really the, the genesis for this concept. Just so that listeners can understand as well, because you know they may not be aware of the towns of Lyme and Old Lyme. Old Lyme does have a very small police force, I understand, and Lyme does not. So just explain that for the listeners, if you would, because that's, I think, important for them to understand because you've just mentioned about response times and that you are not criticizing the police force or law enforcement. Not at all. The the police have been wonderful uh, in responding to any of our needs at, at all of our schools. And I want to be very clear about that. So the two towns are served in general by the state police, specifically Troop F of the Connecticut State Police serves us. us. Troop F is located in Old Saybrook, which, as you know, is just one town over the over the river. The town of Old Lyme does have a resident state trooper, so they pay the state police to employ one of their troopers as a resident state trooper, and they have a number of constables who serve under that resident state trooper. I don't know off the top of my head how many constables they have. I believe it's five. Five or six, possibly. Obviously not all working at the same time. The town of Lyme does not have a resident state trooper. They are served by Troop F out of Old Saybrook. But I want to be clear, it was not just a concern. Certainly Lyme is a concern because that school is very much isolated. It's from our location today, it's a good 10 to 15 minute drive just doing the speed limit. And even if you're driving up there as a law enforcement officer with lights blaring in an emergency situation, you're probably at best going to get there in eight, maybe 10 minutes. And that's coming from this location, not from Troop F or from the highway or anywhere else a trooper could be. But it is, it's more than just that. It's also just the response time here on our main campus and at the Mile Creek School. So for example, as you mentioned, if the constables are out and about in the town, even if they're on a, unless they're parked right out front of our building, the average response time far exceeds the amount of time that most of these incidents take to occur. So talk to us if you would. I mean, you know, you've, you've spoken about response times. You've said that it is, it is, you know, not anything against, you know, the police. Why are you pushing for this so quickly? I mean, you know, we've mentioned about Uvalde and and obviously that struck the nation once again because of the ferocity of what happened there. But a lot of commentary from the, the public and from, you know, things that we've all read online and yourself included, people are saying, okay, fine, but let's slow down. So what's what's the need for speed here? So I would disagree with the assessment that this is rushed. As I mentioned, this is something we've been talking about for many years in our safety committee. This was even brought to our Board of Ed in 2018 in a different format. At that time, we talked about hiring school resource officers, which essentially serve the same purpose, but they're full-fledged police officers. They're not retired police officers. So this concept is not new to us. This is not something that just because of Uvalde came up. This is something we've been talking about for quite a while. Certainly the incident in Uvalde and what happened in Buffalo were further impetus to move this forward, but I would not agree with the assessment that this was rushed into place. We hear your comment that you don't believe it's rushed because you've been having these conversations for a while. Do you accept, though, that when a nation is on heightened awareness, 
after a situation like this, possibly they're going to knee-jerk react and say, yeah, we need to get this done. I don't think that necessarily applies to this situation. I would actually say that I think that, sadly, the nation has become numbed to these situations. I remember very distinctly, obviously, the Sandy Hook situation and the just shock and horror that lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it amazes me how quickly Uvalde and Buffalo have kind of come out of the news so quickly. And now we're talking about inflation and gas prices. So I feel a bit contrary to, to that opinion, if you will, just that I feel like the country's become numb to it, uh, which is a sad, sad statement on, on where we are today. Some of the commentary that came out of the special meeting uh, yesterday, there were some teachers who gave public comments. There were certainly members of the public that gave comments. Based on what they had to say, they kept referring to a particular study, a JAMA study. What's your reaction to that study and why wasn't that persuasive to you? So I did re review that study, and just one point of clarification, none of our teachers spoke at that meeting. I know some teachers from other districts did speak, and we I'm sure you'll want to know the, the opinion of some of our teachers later in this interview, but I did review that study, and like every study, that's certainly something to take into consideration, but I don't think we should necessarily base everything on one study. As I said, I've been to a number of different workshops with various experts in the field. The FBI has studied school shooters extensively, and their number one point in all of these workshops is response time is critical. That's the JAMA study, and again, I'm not in a position to, to criticize it, but some of the things that jumped out at me is they readily admitted that there was no evidence from their study, and they couldn't say whether or not this acts as a deterrent. That was one of the limitations of their study, because really, how do you determine, how do you measure whether or not this is a deterrent? There's no way to collect that data. And then what I found interesting is the school shootings that they looked at, less than 23% of the incidents that they looked at actually had an armed guard on campus. So what might have happened at the other situations if there had been an armed guard there? It's hard to say. No one will know because, you know, that's a, a determination that we can't make. I just want to pick up on the Uvalde situation because obviously it is one of the most recent sad mm -hmm. incidences of a mass shooting at a school. And I just want to put this point to you for just really for, for your reaction to it based on, you know, the comments that you've been making about response times. One of the things that we understand, you know, as this is continuing to be unpacked is that even though police got there, they were apparently outside for 45 minutes before anything was actually done. Mm -hmm. So to your point about response times, what do you say about that? Because, again, it, they were apparently waiting for a key to get into a yeah. building. I mean, all of it sounds very, very sad. It sounds very, very wrong. We still have to unpack all of that. Absolutely. So we're not making a determination on whether it was right or wrong. But that's some of the info that's come out, which I'm you know, clearly you've taken into consideration. Very much, yes. And that is obviously of concern. As I made clear last night, this is not the singular solution to the problem. There is always room for human error in any of these situations. And while I was have heard that information through the news, I'm not here to criticize the people in Uvalde, but I can tell you the Connecticut State Police's position is very different. The first person to respond will immediately go to, forget the term that they use, but essentially take out the threat. So 
if we have a situation here, which we all hope we never do, I am confident that the response will be quite different than what was seen in Uvalde. And the majority of our employees right now are retired state troopers or worked for municipal police departments in Connecticut. And as I said, in Connecticut, the standard police response is the first person, whether you have backup or not, is able to get into the building. I don't want to get in too much into some of the safety measures that we do have in place, but I can assure you the issue with the key will not happen in our schools. We have measures in place that that will not be a problem. Clearly, and I fully understand that we're not intending to to talk about those things because, as you quite rightly said, those are very specific and and they're not, uh, you know, for your school and and nobody wishes to give out that information. But let me put this to you about your three um, security personnel that you have that you wish to, to arm. What are you going to be arming them with? Because, again, there were various comments have been made and, again, was made in the special meeting last night that... Of course, sadly, when these incidents happen, the shooters are very well armed. In fact, they are sometimes more well armed than the law enforcement that is trying to battle them. They have body armor on them. That was also seen recently in the situation with Uvalde. How do you combat that to make sure that these security personnel even have a chance? That's a great question because... Obviously, that's a concern. We're not going to outfit our security personnel with rifles or automatic weapons or things like that. They will be outfitted with the same weapons that they used when they were working as state troopers. The one consideration, though, that I think people need to think about is I would argue all the time these shooters are not trained. They're people who've purchased weapons and maybe gone to a range and shot a gun a couple of times versus highly trained people who not only have been trained in the use of gun, but also in combat with others. So talking about a trained individual with your correct, with less weaponry, but against an untrained individual. Your point is taken, but again, I'm going to put this question to you. In nearly every mass school shooting, those shooters have used automatic weapons which pepper out bullets you know tens per second compared to a security personnel who will have probably a standard issue glock which is a typical weapon pistol which is used by many police forces which you know can only fire so many rounds nowhere in the same range i mean if you're facing something which is spraying you with tens of bullets per second that's a very different situation whether you're trained or not Well, again, I think you're talking, I agree with you compare weapon to weapon, there certainly is a disadvantage there. But I think we also need to factor in the training capabilities. I, I think that carries a lot more weight than you might be giving it. And Again, we're not going to outfit our people with automatic weapons. I don't think there's a need for that. I also don't think they could conceal an automatic weapon, and that's one of the key pieces of of what we're trying to do here. This is just another tool in the toolbox. We have, and there's obviously some safety measures that I can't talk about, but I will share with you that our classrooms, the term hardened target is often used when you talk about, um, or hardened facility, I should say, because I certainly don't want uh, to use the word target, but our facilities, we've put a lot of things in place to make sure that they are, if we had a situation, that person would not have access to our students and our staff. So 
potentially, yes, someone standing in a hallway with a weapon may be, as you said, peppering the, the place, but chances are there will be no one around to get injured. And that may give a security officer an opportunity when they're out of ammunition to step in and and end the situation. So there's you know, there's a lot of factors here to consider when, when you look at that situation. Let's just slightly divert for a second and talk about the teachers and obviously the students. Clearly, you have spoken to them. And uh, I know that there was a document that went out and you revealed some of the results of that at the special meeting. Talk to us about, you know, those conversations that you've been having. Sure. So I should preface it by saying I am not speaking for the entire group of teachers or the entire staff because we had 61 of our 300 staff members respond to our thought exchange. I'm going to use the word survey, although it's not a survey. Process would probably be a better term. And I did not speak to students about it, although we did have some commentary from from students, a very, very small number. I think it was less than 10 total. Those teachers that I spoke to, which I would say is less than 20, were in support of, of this. And I want to clarify, nobody, myself included, likes the idea of having guns in schools. Nobody likes the idea of having locked doors in schools either. But we all recognize that in today's society, it is a necessity. And what about the students? Like I said, I have not had conversations with our students about this. Is there a reason for that? Is there something that you want to have a discussion with them? I mean, the, the, the decision has been made, right. but I mean, it, this as I, as I hope that we made the point at the beginning of this is clearly a continuing discussion. So yeah. is that something that you would like to have? With well, the we students? did put it out to our students. Our high school and middle school students were included in our thought exchange process. As I said, we did not have a great response from our students, and I can't speak to why that may have been. So they did have an opportunity to share with me. And, and I would say our students are, are not shy about sharing their opinions on, on issues. As you saw, we had a young, young lady speak last night at the meeting. But other than that, we really haven't heard from students. And I often do hear from students, you know, when I call a snow day or don't call a snow day, and I should have. They, uh, they certainly let me know. So I think if they had strong feelings about it, they, they would have reached out to us. You said just a moment ago that um, you also don't like the idea of guns in schools. And I put this question to you before we started recording the interview. So I'm going to ask yes. you now officially in the interview, are you a gun owner yourself? Unless you include a BB gun, I am not. And why do you choose not to have a gun? What are your thoughts about those? I don't feel that it's necessary. I also don't think if I were ever in a situation where I needed to use a gun that I could point it at another human being. Bearing that in mind, the decisions that ultimately are being taken by your Board of Education and, of course, yourself people are probably going to be wondering why then you want guns in your schools if you yourself are not a gun advocate. Well, I think it comes down to my role and my responsibility is to keep everybody safe here. And I recognize that in the times that we live in, something needs to be done to address the ongoing mass shootings that are occurring across our country. And while we have put numerous pieces in place to ensure the safety of our students and staff. I feel that this is an additional tool that will continue to keep our students and staff safe. My hope is that these weapons are never drawn in my entire career or period until we find a solution, a larger solution to this problem as, as a nation. But I do feel that we, we need that to be able to make sure that our students, should something happen, our students and staff are, have an opportunity to remain safe. This particular sort of like town has low crime. That doesn't mean things can't happen, of course. So we'll be very clear about that. 
it's also a fairly old population, an older population, even though obviously you do have students here. Do you think, therefore, that some of those attitudes then that um, are in agreement with, you know, maybe having armed security guards comes from an older population that has sort of grown up with this and that, therefore, to them, it it seems the right thing to do, even if, you know, we really wouldn't like to see guns in schools? I'm not so sure about the, the old piece. I think, first of all, the composition of the town is changing. We have a lot of the older generation moving away, downsizing, etc. And we have a lot of new families moving in. We are one of the few school systems in the state of Connecticut that have seen an increase in our student population over the last few years. And that's in large part because of younger families coming into town. So I'm not so sure that would be the reason for that. I think Just before we carry on, so I just want to add something else in on this. I believe that recently this area was voted one of the safest places in the country to live as well. That's good to hear. So, again, it doesn't mean things can't happen. Absolutely. But why do you still want to go down this route? Well, if we, you know, we sat here and assumed nothing would ever happen, we certainly would not be making wise decisions. When I arrived here 10 years ago, the front doors weren't even locked. And this was after Columbine and other situations. We've since instituted a visitor access control system, which is pretty much standard in every school across the country and probably across the world. And I think if we didn't have that, people would say, I can't believe you don't have a visitor access control system. And if you look, speaking of, you mentioned a study, there's also a study out of UConn on school resource officers, which notes that in 2018, 80% of school districts have a school resource officer across the entire country, 80%. So clearly, We're not the only ones who feel that this is a necessary step to make sure that students and staff are safe. Absolutely. And I'm just going to make the point, of course, that possibly there is a bit of pressure as well on school districts that if you don't do something um, that maybe you're seen as not, you know, looking after or, or fully protecting, obviously, the students as well. I mean, one could also look at it that if you do nothing, you could be criticized for not doing anything. I could understand that argument, but if you knew our district, I'm not so sure that that one holds water. We were one of the few school districts who during COVID remained open while everyone else went to hybrid and remote. We decided that our students needed to be in school, so we bucked the trend. So we are not against bucking trends and doing what we think is best for our students. Well, Superintendent, thank you for clarifying the situation and the decision-making that's gone behind what is a very difficult uh, decision, but obviously a very necessary decision in yours and the Board of Education size, and we thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Ready for our little forest adventure? We're here. Whoa, that was fast. There's a forest closer than you think. Find a park or forest near you and music inspired by nature at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by USDA Forest Service and the Ad Council. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at greenvalleytreeworks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number... 
tells a story, a true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts. ctnumbers.news. Connecticut utility companies have been training with National Guard members from all six New England states during the annual two-week Cyber Yankee exercise recently. The exercise helps organizations and businesses develop skills to combat cyber attacks on critical infrastructure like water, energy pipeline, and electric sectors. Lieutenant Colonel Cameron Sprague is the Cyber Yankee 2022 exercise director and says businesses need to take cyber attacks seriously and prepare for them. The biggest thing an organization can do to protect themselves against a cyber attack is basic cyber hygiene. Things like turning on multi-factor authentication for all their users or having an instant response plan and walking through a plan to be prepared for a cyber attack. Patching, that's another issue where many organizations don't have the most up-to-date patches. And really at the executive level, focusing on cybersecurity. Uh, If you do those things, you can lower your risk to a cyber attack. In May this year, the Colonial Pipeline in Texas, one of the largest gas pipelines in the U.S., was shut down for several days after a cyber ransomware attack affecting consumers and airlines along the East Coast and was deemed a national security threat. Reducing the number of young people involved in the criminal justice system means working on the root cause that can lead them there. A youth justice advocacy group hosted a series of events recently with that goal in mind. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service has more. The Connecticut Justice Alliance's hashtag InvestInMeCT campaign was first launched in June 2020 after many discussions about a lack of investment in youth in the state, especially in communities of color. The Alliance's Christina Quaranta says the campaign relaunch comes at an important time after a bill became law last month aimed at addressing a perceived youth crime wave. We're not paying attention to the fact that we are in a pandemic and before March of 2020, black and brown communities were divested in intentionally for many years. And so the importance of addressing the root issues and investing time and money and resources and love and care is more important than ever now. The Justice Alliance has updated its report from two years ago on ending youth criminalization. Quaranta says it includes new conversations with community members the Justice Alliance has had through its vision sessions. I'm Emily Scott. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, lifetime chief of the Mohegan tribe Marilyn Malerba will be the first Native American to serve as U.S. Treasurer. The appointment was announced by President Joe Biden and does not require the approval of the Senate. Malerba, the 18th chief of the Mohegan tribe, who is the first woman to serve as chief in the tribe's modern history, will oversee the U.S. Mint, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and Fort Knox. Malerba will be a key liaison with the Federal Reserve and will be Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's key advisor on community development and public engagement. In the day this week, the town of Groton is implementing a one-year ban on applications to the Planning and Zoning Committee for large-scale data centres so that it can determine how to regulate them. The Commission has discussed the need to create zoning regulations specific to data centres after the Town Council recently considered but ultimately rejected due to concerns that included the noise impact of data centres, a municipal host fee agreement with data centre developer NEEDGE LLC. 
Last year, the council also approved an agreement with another developer, GotSpace, for a potential data centre. But GotSpace has not as yet submitted a specific application to the commission. The purpose of the zoning text amendment approved last week by the town's planning and zoning commission, and which goes into effect July 15th, is to provide adequate time to develop and adopt zoning regulations to address data centres over 5,000 square feet in size. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, for the first time in a quarter of a century, Killingley Town workers next month will be running and overseeing Killingley's wastewater treatment plant and its associated systems. Town manager Mary Calorio said a 25-year contract with the Suez North America Group, which was recently integrated into the Veolia Water Technologies Company, is set to expire on June 30th. The town several months ago floated the idea of a one-year contract extension to Suez, but the idea failed to gain traction. The town has so far filled all but one of the six plant jobs after several existing Suez employees were rehired to work as non-union town workers. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.